You're listening to a podcast by New Heights Church. We hope you're encouraged to glorify, grow, and go. This past week was Valentine's Day, um, in case you didn't know. If, if you're just now finding this out, um, and, you're, and you're in a relationship, or you're married, um, it's too late, you already messed up, so better luck next year. But, um, but we're finishing out the, the fifth chapter of Ephesians today. Um, in a volume we've entitled We Are Loving, that as the church, we're called to be in loving relationships with one another. And, and Paul kind of ends this discussion on love by looking at marriage relationships. And so um, I'm going to spend a lot of time talking about marriage today. And if you're here and you're not married, um, I don't want you to tune out. I don't want you to ignore it because I think there is um, a pertinence and an importance to this passage for everyone, even those that are not married, um, or even if you're not in a dating relationship. I think uh, the picture of marriage that Paul gives and the way he presents it is actually really beneficial to single people as well. And so I think there's something for all of us today, wherever you may find yourself relationally. Um, I know if you're here and you're single, I know Valentine's Day is a rough time for y'all. You've seen flowers and chocolates and, you know, it's just like, get get done with that, okay? Um, So I don't want this to be a repeat of Valentine's Day for you if you're single. Um, And I I talked about singleness with my wife uh, historically several years ago, and we were talking about what happens when one of us dies. And... um, you know, I don't know if you've ever had that conversation with your spouse, but I, I'm just selfish, and I said, I just want you to be miserable the rest of your life if I die. I want you to just grieve forever. Never get over me. You're just sad the rest of your days. And, um, and she's like, well, if I die, I want you to find a wife because you're helpless on your own. And, and I was like, well, I... I don't want to find a wife. Uh, no one can replace you, darling. I was trying to be sweet, but I said, if, if you die, I'll just be single and happy. And I realized when I said it, it came out a different way than I intended. So she's still, like, when we fight, she reminds me of that. Maybe I'll just die and you can be single and happy, right? Um, and so that's not what I meant, but that's, that's what I said. So, you know, you, you husbands know how you say something wrong. It just kind of sticks around in your marriage forever, right? Um, but uh, that, is, that is something that we like to joke about. But I, I want to look at marriage today from, from four different perspectives. Um, so we'll look at it from a, a lady's perspective. Uh, the second point of the sermon will be looking at it from a, a fellow's perspective. The third point will be looking at marriage um, from a societal perspective. Let's, let's look at what marriage actually is, what, what it means, why did God create it. And then fourthly and finally, we'll look at it from a gospel perspective, um, looking at the church and, and how marriage actually reflects the church, okay? Um, so ladies first, um, we, you know, we have that saying, ladies first, um, that, that's normally a mark of, of chivalry. Um, today, you might not appreciate that, I don't know, but you come first in the passage in the Bible, and so we're going to deal with that first. And um, when we look at a, a woman's role in marriage, um, it, it is completely countercultural. Um, it, is, it is called outdated and archaic and irrelevant by our modern society. Um, but we need to begin the discussion on marriage with, a, with a, um, just a foundational belief that we believe that the Bible is the Word of God. It is the inspired Word of God. It is inerrant. It is, um, it is outside of culture. It's outside of time. It's how God has revealed himself to us. And so if you disagree on that, then you're not going to disagree with me on marriage roles and a, a woman's role and a man's role. You're going to disagree with, with how we receive God's revelation. Okay? And so uh, at this church, we believe God's word is the authority of faith and practice. And so even when the Bible says things that are confusing, or even if we don't like it, uh, we trust it as God's revelation. Okay? And so when we look at this, I just need you to keep that in mind. And so ladies going first, let's look at Genesis chapter 2, verse 18. To begin, um, we want to look at what the scripture says early on, um, how God defines marriage um, in the book of Genesis. 
Um, and in Genesis 2.18, it says, Then the Lord God said, It is not good that man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. Now, immediately, modern society will tune out and say that is an old, outdated view of a woman's role. Um, she's not to be a helper. The, the inherent error in that is that um, they view the word helper as a derogatory term. That's not the case. It is a title of honor uh, to, be, uh, to be called a helper. Jesus calls the Holy Spirit what? The helper. By the way, the Holy Spirit is God himself. And so God is, one of God's names for himself is the helper. And so we need to understand and have the right frame of mind here that it is a title of honor to be called a helper. In the Hebrew language, there's a word picture that comes along with helper. It means almost like a lean-to. And, and the, the idea is that Adam could not stand on his own. Adam, the first man, was not sufficient in and of himself to stand without having someone, a helpmate or a helper, um, to lean up against him. And so the two together would be able to stand. And one of the saddest verses in the Bible is it, you, you see this picture of Adam naming all the animals. Animals are coming to him, and he's seeing in every animal, male and female, male and female, male and female. And it says, but for Adam, there was not found a helper suitable for him. And so God answers that problem in verse 21 of Genesis 2. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord took uh, had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man." Adam's, Adam's name, by the way, just means man. And so if you're here and you're named Adam, I'm sorry, but you have the most basic name on the planet. Um, and so Adam is just called man. Eve's name means mother of all living. And so she has this really beautiful name um, to, to show their, you know, Adam's made from dirt. Eve is made in this beautiful wedding ceremony. And so what happens is God uh, performs the first surgery. He puts Adam to sleep in this holy anesthesia. Adam, just imagine being Adam. He falls asleep and he wakes up and there's a beautiful naked woman standing in front of him, right? And so what are you going to do then? You begin to sing. That is the most natural place for a musical number to begin. And so in verse 23 of Genesis 2, in Hebrew, it is poetry. And so, so when he says, uh, this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh, we don't know how much time had passed, but he says, at last, like he had been looking for this, right? Longing for this. At last, it's bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh. And it's poetic, and it's probably a song. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. What's happening here is this is the first wedding ceremony. God brings a man and a woman together, and he unites them in his created garden. Okay? Now, we get to the New Testament, and we see that, that Gentile nations and pagan influences have corrupted God's design for marriage, not unlike today, and, um, and have corrupted what marriage is supposed to be. And so... Um, a lot of passages in the New Testament actually describe roles within marriage. And this is one of those passages. Um, it's the longest of those passages. And in Ephesians 5, verse 22, Paul writes to correct and, and teach the Ephesian believers what marriage should look like in the Lord. He says, Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its Savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Now, I know that's a lot to take in, ladies. I know you're hearing that, and you're like, wait, 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 well, it's, it's 2023. 
Now's the time in the sermon where you do your job, you get into the Greek, and you tell us what it says linguistically, that it's not exactly what we think it may seem. And so let's do that. Let's jump into the Greek. The Greek word for submit is hupotasso. And I know you're all anxious for the definition of what hupotasso means. It means submit, okay? It even means obey, right? And so if, if, you're, if you're really trying to wiggle out of what the Bible says here, this is a good translation, um, and, and hupotasso really does mean that. It was actually even used to describe um, military officers and how they would submit to, to higher authority in the way that they led their, their military. And so as you see this, I, I don't know how this makes you feel, ladies, um, but I do want to disarm you and let you know that God's word is good, even when it doesn't feel good to hear it. God's word is for your good, even when you don't understand why. And, and I need you to trust that and trust his revelation. Now let me, I, I want to spend some time kind of disarming maybe what our, our misconceptions of submission might be. Um, when we think of submission, uh, we tend to think of it as like, y'all watch MMA stuff, like UFC? That's what we tend to think of as submission. Like one guy's got another bleeding man on the mat and he's, his face is red because he's being choked out and a submission is when the other guy taps out, right? That's what we have in our minds when we think of submission. But submission biblically is, is not that, it's not in that sense. Submission biblically is a joyful following of a godly leader. That's what submission is. Um, if, if you could imagine a, a slow dance. Remember in middle school when you had to learn how to slow dance? If you're raised in a Christian home, they, they taught you to keep, keep room for the Holy Spirit between you and the girl you're dancing with. So you, you always had like that awkward, you know, kind of rocking going on like this. Jesus is here. Girl's over there. Um, <laughs> now, in, in, in like good ballroom dancing, which I can't do, um, that there should be a leader in that dance. Um, now, the two dancers can, can feel who the leader is, but the onlooker might not be able to identify who's leading the dance. Um, but it's felt within the relationship. I think that's a, a better analogy when we look at submission and what that looks like. You're joyfully and lovingly and respectfully following the lead of your husband, but as people look into your marriage, they see a joyful dance rather than a controlling submission. Does that make sense? You tracking with me? In submission, don't think control, think godly leadership. And husbands leading the dance while onlookers look on, they see a beautiful partnership on display. And I want to answer the question of why. Why does God ask wives to do this? What's the purpose? Well, the reason is, is we function in all of life, by the way, with leadership and submission. Um, human beings function in leadership and submission. This is how God is designed. It models heavenly principles. And so whether you're a man or a woman in areas of your life, there are times you have to lead and there are times you have to submit and follow um, in, all, in all cases. And so gender roles are important um, and, and other roles are important that God has placed us in. And I don't want you to, some, some, some uh, people study the Bible and they say, well, these gender roles exist because of sin or they exist because of the fall. That's not the case. Um, in God's design, before sin comes in Genesis chapter 3 and Genesis 1 and 2, we're given the explanation of how God has designed men and women to function together. And so gender roles do not exist because of the fall. These roles become difficult for us because of the fall. Because of our sin, it's difficult for us. Uh, ladies, specifically in Genesis 3.16, God brings a curse after Eve eats from the tree, uh, the forbidden tree. It says, to the woman, he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing, in pain you shall bring forth children. And so I think he's talking about physical uh, childbirth that's painful. I think it's also like raising your kids is painful. Amen? Those suckers, I mean, they just take the life out of you. And so, 
So he's saying, as you begin to nurture children and raise them the way that, that I've called you to, it's going to be hard. It's going to be difficult. And then he says, um, maybe, the, maybe the hardest thing of all is not the children in your home, but that guy you live with, right? <clears throat> he's going to be difficult. He says, your desire shall be contrary to your husband. So that's part of the fall. That your desire will be antagonistic toward your husband, but he shall rule over you. And so after sin, submission then becomes difficult. It wasn't invented after sin. It became difficult after sin. Your desire shall be contrary to your husband. And so submission was by design, not by the fall. Eve was called Adam's helper, remember, before sin happened. And so these gender roles pre-existed sin and are good by God's design. At our church, um, our pastors teach what's called complementarianism as opposed to egalitarianism. Complementary uh, theology says that men and women are both created in God's image. God created us in his image, male and female. He created us. That's what Genesis says about us. But it says that we're created within certain roles. Men serve a role, women serve a role that complement one another. What this means is we're equal in value because we're all created in God's image, but we serve in our corresponding roles as we complement one another for God's glory. All of this is based on, by the way, Ephesians 5.21. This whole discourse, as Paul talks about marriage, is based in verse 21. The Greek word hupotasso, submit, in 22, is actually not in the original Greek. It's a carryover from verse 21. And so it says, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. And so this means that submission happens not just in marriage, but everything that comes after verse 21 is about submission. And so he begins with marriage. He says, here's how submission looks in marriage. Wives, submit to your husbands. Then he, in chapter 6, he says, we're going to get into that next week. He says, children, you're to submit to your parents. Here's biblical submission again. Then in chapter 6, verse 5 and on, he says, this is how you submit in work. Servants, submit to your masters. And then he gives us the armor of God. And he says that we're to submit to the gospel in the church. And so he gives us this broad picture of submission that all of us need to pay attention to. And so wives, specifically, when you're called to submit to your husbands, don't think God's being mean to you. He's acting in your best interest. Let me, let me maybe uh, deal with a few misconceptions, though. Submission for you, wife, does not mean that you are less valuable. First of all, it doesn't mean that you're less valuable than your husband. Um, secondly, submission for wives does not mean they follow their husband's leadership into sin. God always has the ultimate authority. If you find yourself in an abusive relationship, you get out. If you find yourself in a place where your husband is leading you away from the cross, you do not follow his lead away from the gospel. Okay? Jesus is always the ultimate authority. Thirdly, submission for wives does not mean that you never direct your husband. If you never speak to your husband uh, and give advice to your husband and give help, again, your title is helper, give help to your husband, he, I guarantee you he's going to do a bang-up job leading your home. He's going to mess it up if you don't speak up, okay? Fourthly and finally, submission for wives does not mean that you submit to all men. This is not chauvinism that's being talked about. This is not that every woman submits to every man. It says wives submit to your own husbands. And so you have a relationship there. Let me tell you what submission does mean for wives. It means that you respectfully follow the lead of a man who would die for you. And if he won't die for you, He's not husband material. If you're, if you're here and you're a single lady and you're thinking about marrying somebody and you have doubts as to if he'll die for you, he ain't husband material. Take the ring off. Say, give us some time. Let's talk to a pastor. Don't, there's time to back out. I love telling premarital couples, like up to the wedding day, there's still time to back out of this, right? Don't make those vows if he ain't husband material. 
Verse 25 tells us what husband material looks like, that he will sacrifice himself the way Jesus sacrificed himself for the church. Married ladies, if you're married to a man who won't die for you, that don't mean you get to leave him, but it means we need to make him husband material. And, and the reality is, is that many of you might need some marital counseling. I think every marriage at some point is probably going to need some kind of help from the outside. Uh, my wife and I just took a marriage assessment a couple weeks ago, and um, it was so enlightening, so helpful to see like things we're like, killing it in and doing good, and then things we're doing not so well in. And, and I think all of us need to occasionally look at those things and say, what do we need to improve in? And so, ladies, um, I, I, I really encourage you to try to model this. And if you need help modeling this, please speak to someone. Come to the women's Bible study and talk to another lady about that. Talk to one of your pastors. Um, we need to set that straight for your good and God's glory. All right, let's talk to the fellows. Um, what does God say to husbands? Husbands, I want to compare you to um, uh, I want to compare you to a utility trailer. I have this utility trailer that I bought. Um, I spent a few hundred bucks on it, which was way too much money. And then both the tires were dry rotted, and they blew up, and so I had to buy new tires. And then I had to rewire the thing, and it was just a big mess. And I ended up paying so much money to get this trailer legal. Um, it was in a deceased man's name, and that was a whole bunch of paperwork with the DMV. I ended up paying so much money for this trailer that I have, I won't even tell you how much I've got invested in it. My wife will tell you after service. And, and I look at the thing, and I'm like, I can't believe I got that much money in this. It's not worth it. No one will ever buy it from me. So now I call it a lifer. Every good man needs to have a lifer trailer that they've put too much money in and they're stuck with it. They have a marital union to the utility trailer they have, right? You guys all know somebody or you're that somebody with a lifer trailer. And, and so that's me. I follow after my dad in that. My dad's got a lifer trailer and um, I swore I'd never do it and then here I am doing it. And, and that trailer, let me tell you, it is, all, it is a danger to society when I drive it. Um, it, it's, it's bouncing. I mean, it's swerving all over the road. I'm pulling it with my little teeny tiny truck. And it's just like, people are like hiding when I'm going down the road, right? It's a mess. Um, but the problem is, is it's so light and it's so bouncy and it's, and it's all over the place. Now, the time that my lifer utility trailer does well is when it's loaded down with stuff. Then it, then it rolls straight. Then it doesn't bounce all over the road. Okay. And men, you're like that. And I know you might, you might want to disagree with me on this, but men are just like those utility trailers. We do a lot better when we're bearing some responsibility and have a load to carry. And, and I, I can prove this by my own life. When my wife and kids are out of town, I am utterly useless to all of society. I've seen that. I'm just like, only thing I'm doing is like making Totino's pizza rolls and wasting my time. That's it. And, and, and if you're single and you don't have a wife and kids and you can do better than just making Totino's all the time, then God bless you. But, um, but I've learned that I need some of that responsibility. So my best advice to you men, especially young men who are single, um, if, if you want to find a wife, that's a good thing. Proverbs tells us that. If you don't find a wife, find some responsibility so you can drive straight. Um, because if you're bouncing all over the place, you're, no, you're, you're bringing no glory to God and you're not doing any good for yourself. Genesis 2.15 tells us that work is a part of how we bring God glory. Responsibility. It says the Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and keep it. You see, the fall did not create work. Work existed, again, before sin. What sin did was it made work feel like work. Amen? It made work suck. That's what sin did. 
Genesis 3.19, God says to Adam, By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. The reason you get tired, the reason work feels like work, the reason it's a toil is because of sin, but work predates sin. God has created us for work. God's created us for responsibility. But men, what that does in our souls is it creates a sinful tendency to wrap up our identity in what we do rather than who God has made us to be. And I, I can tell you that from my own heart, I can speak for a lot of men who I've seen this in, is that our careers become gods that we worship. We become slaves to our jobs. That's where we find our identity. That's where we see our value. And so all of our effort goes into worshiping a God that we call work. That's not what God has designed it to be. God's designed us for work, but he's designed us for so much more than that. Men, hear me very clearly. You don't get a paycheck for your most important work. This work comes in addition to your job. That when you're at your most exhausted state, this work still has a high calling on your life. Matt Chandler calls this the second shift. When you pull into your driveway and you're exhausted because of sin, because of the, the burden that work has placed on our souls as fallen men, when you sit in your driveway and you take that deep breath and you say that quick prayer and you go inside, you got to choose to not lay on the couch, but get in the floor and crawl around with your kids or do something thoughtful for your wife and do that second shift work. That means particularly you husbands that are in seasons of fatherhood, that means that hunting, fishing, balling, gaming, and riding might have to take a back seat and your hobbies might have to not be as important as they were in your adolescence. Husbands, verse 25 tells us to love our wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. He gave himself up. That means that your hobbies and interests and your job cannot take precedent over your family anymore. You sacrifice yourself. And if you don't want that, don't get married. Don't sign up for it. If you don't want that as a father, don't have sex. Like the, the responsibility that comes that's loaded up that trailer, you've got to drive straight with that. That's what God has placed on you for his glory. You give yourself up for your bride. You love her sacrificially. You would die for her. Look at Jesus' example. Jesus, as an unmarried man, gives us the perfect and supreme example of what godly men do, what he does for the church. I think you can clearly see it in his relationship with the twelve. He spends all his time with his disciples. He teaches them. He leads them. He lives with them. He doesn't try to get time away from them. He serves them. He washes their feet. He prays with them, and he prays for them. Look at how deeply spiritual our role is to be, men. Husbands, your leadership is supposed to be deeply spiritual. As Paul compares us to Jesus himself, he says that Jesus might sanctify her, being the church, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, meaning that husbands, you're to cleanse your wives with the scriptures. You're to walk with your family in the word of God. You're to pray with your wives so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. Husbands, I want you to ask yourself this spiritual question. Is your wife a better Christian because she's married to you? If the answer is no, then you're not leading as you should. Because we as husbands are called to wash our wives with the water of the word to lead them in spiritual things. 
And this overflows into our children, which we'll talk more about next week. But our, our children should be closer to Jesus because of us, because of the way we lead our homes. Paul continues in verse 28, In the same way husbands should love their wives as their own bodies, he who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. That we love, we nourish, and we cherish our wives. Some of you men were sitting in here listening to the first point of the sermon and thinking, man, I wish my wife would respect me. Man, I wish my wife would follow my lead. Maybe give her something worth following, and she might. It is important and imperative that we see what the Bible calls us to, husbands. When Genesis says that we become one flesh with our wives, it signifies our physical union sexually, but also our emotional union. That we love our wives well, and when we do that, we're also loving ourselves well, well because our marriages should promote oneness between the two of us. The activities in your life should always promote oneness with you and your bride. That doesn't mean you spend every minute together, but it means that that, that should be your priority. And he who loves his wife loves himself. This is the closest thing in the Bible to happy wife, happy life. Had a, I won't mention a name, but I had, a, I had a man, an older man, tell me before the service that his secret to a long and happy marriage is saying yes, dear, a lot. That was good advice. <laughs> but the reality is that there are times in your marriage that you're not going to feel real happy about that. The reality is there are going to be times where it feel, everything in your emotions and your feelings you're going to want out because it's going to be difficult. But marriage doesn't exist for your happiness as much as your holiness. And God has, uh, has called you to honor the union and the vows that you've made to one another. And so husbands, you're to nourish and cherish your bride like Jesus does his bride, the church. I mean, there's a proactivity of work and nourishing. You can't just sit back and nourishment happen. You have to be proactive and you need to cherish her. You need to love her sacrificially. You should have a deep joy for just being with her. The third thing is to look at marriage from a societal point of view. Listen, marriage is a, is a God-made union. Paul quotes from Genesis chapter 2 to prove this in Ephesians 5. Uh, verse 31, he says, Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two uh, shall become one flesh. Now, our modern culture wars against what's known as traditional marriage. Um, by, by its most root definition, I would say I, I would agree with um, the traditional view of marriage. Uh, one man and one woman for life. Um, but I don't like the word traditional marriage because of the connotations it comes, it comes with. Um, I actually really prefer the view that Andreas Kossenberger, a theologian, makes um, in his book, God, Marriage, and Family. He makes the difference, he notes the difference between a traditional marriage and a biblical marriage. A traditional marriage focuses on responsibilities. What are your jobs? What do you do in this partnership? What do you bring to the table? Well, in a traditional marriage, the husband brings home the bacon and the wife cooks and cleans and takes care of the kids, usually in heels and a pearl necklace on the comics I've seen, right? The husband wears a tie. He comes in and he says, darling, you should vacuum once in a while, you know, and, it, and it's super insulting. But a biblical marriage doesn't focus on responsibilities, but rather focuses on roles. Husbands lead sacrificially while wives nurture and help in the gospel, now, leading sacrificially for husbands in that role does mean working hard, and, and leading well in nurturing does include a domestic primacy for the wife, but it does not lock you into a 1950s societal view of what marriage has to look like. Our aim should not be the societal norm of the 1950s, but rather, what does the Word of God say for us? So is this for everyone? 
When the word tells us what marriage is, do we all have to ascribe to this? If you're here and you're listening, you're watching online, and you're saying, I'm single, is this what, is this what I got to do? The answer is, of course not. This is not for everyone. Marriage is not a sacrament, contrary to what the Catholic Church may teach. Um, I want to read some from 1 Corinthians chapter 7, where Paul gives um, some explanation on marriage and sex. In 1 Corinthians 7, 8, and 9, he says, To the unmarried and the widows, he's basically saying single people, I say that it's good for them to remain single, as I am. Paul was probably divorced, and he's saying it's good for you to remain single. But if they cannot exercise self-control, they should marry, for it's better to marry than to burn with passion. And so he's saying, um, if you're single, it is actually to your benefit and the benefit of God's kingdom for you to even remain single. In verse 7, he says, I wish that all were as I myself am. Paul probably had a lot of marriage counseling on his calendar, and he's thinking, man, I wish everybody was single. This would be a lot easier. I'd just be like, y'all go to your own houses. Quit worrying about it. He says, I wish all were as I myself am, but each one has his own gift, one of one kind and one of another. You see, the Bible makes it clear that your singleness can be and, and really will be a missional advantage to you. If you're single, you're, you should use your singleness, whether that exists for your whole life or exists for a season, you should use it for the glory of God. In verse 34, Paul says, a, a married man's interests are divided, and he says, the unmarried or betrothed woman is anxious about the things of the Lord how to be holy in body and spirit. So when he says anxious, he says this woman that's, that's uh, unmarried, she can focus on the things of the gospel. But the married woman is worried about worldly things and how to please her husband. He's saying her interests are divided. And so when marriage is pursued, it has to be a biblical marriage, but if it's not pursued, you can leverage all that time that you would spend in a courtship and in marriage and in parenting and all those things um, dedicated to the mission of God. So it's not sinful to remain single, and it's not sinful to pursue marriage. Either way, it can be pleasing to the Lord. But when marriage is pursued, it must be biblical marriage. Not traditional marriage, but biblical marriage. That means the definition that, that we see in Genesis chapter 2, and then we're given again in Ephesians 5 and other places in Scripture, that it is one man born as a man, married to one woman, born as a woman, until death do they part. That means polygamy is not part of God's design, even though it is in Scripture. They're polygamous in the Bible, that doesn't mean that God ever approved of that action. Even when we see the qualifications of pastors as a list of sins, it said these pastors should not have these lists of sins. It said he needs to be the husband of one wife. And homosexuality, by the way, is also not part of God's design. And in sex and marriage, what we do is we turn away from our carnal desires to look to God's design and say this is how God has told us to carry out sexuality and marriage. And, and a word on that, on, on homosexuality, if, if, if you've only ever experienced same-sex attraction, I want you to understand that that's not condemning you. That's not sending you straight to hell. All of us have carnal desires that are opposed to God's word. Everyone does. I, I've, I've shared with, with gay friends, and they've, they've said, well, am I going to hell because I'm gay? And I say, no, because I'm not going to heaven because I'm straight. Um, we, go to, we go to heaven because Jesus has forgiven us and we've placed our trust in, in a holy Savior. And we go to hell for rejecting that. But once we repent of sin and believe the gospel, we also obey the gospel. The Spirit brings us to life. And the things that the Bible clearly says are wrong, we begin to detest those things and turn away from those things. And they say, well, I was born this way. And I say, well, Jesus said you've got to be born again. It doesn't matter how we're born. We're all born with sinful proclivities and desires. All of us are born in a way that is 
unnatural and sinful. And Jesus says, this is why you must be born again to enter my kingdom. Everyone, gay, straight, whatever, everyone denies themselves to follow Jesus. Everyone does. Romans 1 says, For this reason God gave them up to dishonorable passions, for their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another, men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves due penalty for their error. The Bible is very clear on this. Homosexual activity is sinful. But Christians, your Bible is not a weapon for you to beat gay people over the head with. You beckon them to the same gospel that saved you if you're a heterosexual. We lift high the gospel of Jesus Christ. And we say, once repentance is found, then we follow this as a guide to how we can most glorify Jesus. Whatever path we came from to find that, we acknowledge that sanctification will bring about God's glory in all cases. And what that leads us to is there are some really hard circumstances. There's some really hard realities. I know some Christians who have, have only ever experienced same-sex attraction, and they say, can I never get married? Well, the answer might be no. The answer might be yes. You can certainly pray for those desires to change, but the answer might be no. Wherever that may be, I can't answer that, but I do know that if we follow after marriage, it must be by God's design. And if, and if those desires don't change, then maybe God has planned for you to do great things for his cause. Those of you that are, that are maybe single and wanting a spouse and pursuing that in a godly way and it just doesn't seem to be happening, let me encourage you with this, that, that while the church might, in a, in, a very, in a very stupid way, might make you feel like a second-rate Christian, the Bible actually says you are equipped to be a first-class missionary with more time than most people have and more commitment to the gospel than most people have, with, a, with an advantage to carry the gospel to the nations. All of us should seek to look at marriage, whether we are married or not, and understand this is a beautiful picture of the gospel, which brings me to my fourth and final point as we look at the church. Paul says that this whole thing is a picture of Jesus and his bride, the church. Um, the church is called in Scripture the bride of Christ. And all marriages on earth are meant to mirror the heavenly marriage between Jesus and the church. And by the way, all marriages are temporary, all of them. It's till death do us part. And when death happens, there, there is the ending of that marriage. Um, I know some of y'all like to think, we'll be married in heaven, right? Um, you're going to have much more to glory in in heaven than your spouse, I promise you. Um, Joe Holland, uh, he's a professor at Grimke Seminary, not the guy that sells cars. Different Joe Holland. Um, I actually saw this quote from him shared this week. I thought it was fitting. He says, the ideal marriage ceremony includes a funeral service at the other end. Why don't you just think about that for a second? The ideal marriage ceremony includes a funeral service at the other end, where one spouse rejoices that the other has gone on to be with Jesus and that both of them have been faithful to what they promised. I've officiated a lot of wedding ceremonies. Embarrassingly, I could be a great wedding planner at this point. If this pastor thing doesn't work out, that's probably what I'm going to do next, just be a wedding planner. I can coordinate collars. I know where everyone's supposed to stand. I can run a rehearsal like nobody's business. I can just do all that. And what I've seen in that is that much attention is dedicated to the first day of a marriage, right? All the, all the hair and the makeup and the dresses and the planning, and the events and the chicken or the steak and all of these things. There's magazines about it. There's conventions about it. 
Like there's drawings to win stuff. There's whole Instagram feeds that are just crazy. There's TV shows. There's so much commitment to the first day of a marriage, but most of us don't pay attention to a God-honoring last day of the marriage, knowing that that's going to come, knowing that that will be there. That a God-honoring last day of the marriage, we ought to pray, ends in a hospital or a hospice house, but unfortunately many of them end in a courthouse. It's difficult for us to think about this, but as God's people, we must have our attention focused on this, that we want to honor our commitments to one another until that day. This temporal union, and again, it's temporal, it's meant to point to an eternal union between Christ and the church. Verse 32 says, this mystery is profound, and I'm saying that it refers to Christ in the church. And so Paul just does a big switch on us. We think it's a marriage seminar, and he says, the whole point of everything I've been saying is not just for marriage, although that might be a byproduct benefit of you. But he says, the whole thing is referring to Christ and the church. It's a gospel issue. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. So that means your marriage should point husband and wife individually to the cross. And that means that everyone in, in your home, your kids, should be pointed to the cross by your marriage. That means that everyone around you should be pointed to the cross by your marriage. There may be no better witness of the gospel than two people living together in grace and forgiveness. Jesus says that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. Jesus is getting his bride ready, the church. The church is being prepared by Jesus to be introduced to Jesus at a great wedding day. We see it previewed in Revelation chapter 19. Revelation 19, John is writing about the second coming of Christ when Jesus returns for his bride, his betrothed. That passage says, Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters, and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder, crying out, Hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty, reigns. Let us rejoice and exalt and give him glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure, for the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. What this means is that wives, when you submit to your husband's lead, it's a righteous deed of the saint, and ultimately it's preparing you to meet Jesus. Husbands, when you sacrifice yourself for the benefit of your wife and your children, it is a righteous deed that's preparing you to meet Jesus. Single folks, when you remain pure in your sexuality, it's preparing you to meet Jesus. When you serve with the time that you have on mission for God's glory, it's preparing you to meet Jesus. That all of us are making ourselves ready for this day. The next verse in Revelation, the angel says to John, write this, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, these are the true words of God. This marriage supper is a beautiful picture of the consummation of all things. What we as the church are marching toward, we are preparing ourselves and getting ready to meet our bridegroom, Jesus Christ. Now, before the, the wedding ceremony, which is typically on like a Saturday, what happens Friday night? It's the rehearsal, right? The rehearsal dinner. Sunday after Sunday, as we come in and we gather here, we have bread and juice at three tables set out for you. The rehearsal dinner is never as good as the reception, right? It doesn't have the fanfare. It doesn't have the special dances as people come in, right? It doesn't have quite the dressy get up. But it prepares everyone there for what's coming. 
As you prepare your heart today for communion, we're calling you to these tables as a rehearsal dinner. We're calling you to look at yourself and say, in what areas of my life am I not ready to meet Jesus? In what areas of my life do I need to repent and trust him more? I want you to go ahead and and stand to your feet, but bow your heads with me. And as you stand in reverence to God, and as you bow your heads, I want you to draw attention to your own heart and your own posture. If you're married, particularly today, I think this should be a time where you can turn your attention to your marriage. If you're a husband and you're not loving your wife sacrificially, don't come to the table of Jesus in this rehearsal dinner without first making a commitment to love your bride and give yourself up for her. Make that commitment. And if you're not ready to make that commitment, stay in your seat. Don't come to the Lord's table without honoring what he's said about this. Wives, if your heart's full of resentment toward your husband, stay in your seat. Those of you that are single, if you're living in sexual sin, promiscuity, pornography, whatever that may be, whatever that might look like for you, if you're not honoring the Lord in your singleness, stay in your seat. But my desire would be that all of us come before the Lord and wherever we find ourselves relationally with one another, we would come before the Lord and say, we commit, Jesus, to honor you with that. And if we've sinned every day of our lives in this area up until now, let me tell you very clearly, if you trust in the gospel, Jesus paid for it. Jesus died for it. He sacrificed himself for you. So today you leave your seat and you come to this rehearsal dinner and you let it point you to a joy that is coming in Jesus that is bigger than you could ever imagine. So you spend some time repenting. Let me pray over you. And then we'll sing a song together. And then after that song, we'll come to the table. Lord, thank you for all of your grace and goodness. And God, I pray that you would help us to honor you in all of our ways. God, forgive us where we fail you. God, we know that we come as a room full of sinners. with so much brokenness that we wouldn't want to see it if we could. But God, we know that's your view. As you look on our gathering from heaven, you see every sin. Everything is exposed. Everything is plain to you. And so God, help us to truly commit to repentance, to truly commit to living in a way that honors you, to truly commit as husbands to love our wives sacrificially, that our wives in here would truly commit to honoring the gospel in their marriage, that those that are unmarried would truly commit to serving your church sacrificially and fervently, that all of us would look at the picture of marriage and see something so much more beautiful in the gospel. So Lord, forgive us, grant us repentance, and Lord, may we praise and honor you. And it's in Jesus' name we pray, amen. We hope you enjoyed the podcast. To learn more about New Heights Church or a relationship with Christ, please visit our website at www.newheightswv.com.